0: If Jesus were to appear to you, look you right in the eye, and utter these words, what would you do? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. If we were, he were to sit on the corner of your bed as you woke up this morning and say those words to you, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And then poof, he was gone. That was the end of it. What would you do? What would you do at that point? Would that make sense what he was saying to you? Would it make sense? Would you know how to obey that command, that instruction from Jesus? Well, we know the instruction is biblical because it's found in John seven twenty four. It's in our main passage this morning. Listen to a few other translations of the same verse. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. That's the New International Version. Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. That's the New Living Translation. Here's the New English Translation. Do not judge according to external appearance, but judge with proper judgment. So, some different aspects ways of looking at that same idea all still saying really this making the same point if you are interested in following jesus in every way this morning if you have the heart of a disciple that says lead me lord jesus lead me i'm your servant i'm your student guide me if that's your heart, then you want to think more carefully about this. You want to understand what Jesus is saying here. So let's think more carefully about this command by turning and looking at John chapter seven. Uh, I think many of you are already there, and as you uh, are there or get there, consider this: consider that our passage for this morning is uh, gives us provides us with a time indicator. You'll see that in verse two. Chapter 7, verse 2 tells us that the Jewish Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles was about to begin. This holy day, Jewish holy day, uh, also mentioned in the course in the Old Testament, prescribed in the Old Testament, also known as Sukkot, it takes place actually about a week from tomorrow. Uh, So late September is when this feast takes place. So because chapter six also included a time indicator that told us it was around Passover time, we know that chapter seven takes place almost six months after chapter six. So let's take a look at verses one through 24 in our time together. But let's do so in two parts. First, let's look at verses one through 13 A section that focuses on going to the feasts and then on verses 14 through 24 verses that focus on conflict at the feasts. Going to the feasts and conflict at the feasts. This is what John tells us beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Galilee, as you may know, is the northern part of Israel, distinct from Judea, which is the south where Jerusalem is. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, the brothers of Jesus, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. They may have in mind the disciples that were said to have left in verse 66 of the last chapter. Those who had turned away from Jesus. So they're trying to convince him to go and maybe get some of those disciples back. Verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even, this is John's comment, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to his brothers, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him. No surprise at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, uh, while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, no one spoke openly of him. So verse five, if you take a look at that again. It confirms that even the half brothers of Jesus did not believe he was the Messiah, the son of God. Remember the whole point of John's gospel is to persuade the reader that, or encourage the reader in the truth that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. His brothers did not believe in Him in this way. They did recognize that Jesus had some kind of messianic agenda, but it's obvious here that He and they had very different ideas about the right way to move forward with that agenda. Their popular ideas about the Messiah led to advice like we find here in verses three and four. The feast, the feast is the time, Jesus. Jerusalem is the place, brother. If you want to be a public persona, you've got to go show yourself publicly, right? This, if you want to be in the big time, Uh big bro <laughs> if you want to be in the big time you got to make a big splash you've got to get out there where the people are that's what they're saying but even though jesus tells his brothers that in verse eight he's not going up to the feasts, verse 10 actually helps us understand what jesus meant what jesus meant was i am not going up to the feast publicly I am not going up to the feast like you're going up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast in the pilgrim caravans. I'm not going up with all the fanfare. Why was that? Because verse two, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Right? Many of the Jewish leaders, when it talks about the Jews, usually in the gospel of John's referring to a portion of the Jewish leaders, a good, good sized portion of the Jewish leaders. They were seeking to kill him. And indeed, look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him. They were on the lookout for Jesus. So they were waiting for him. Jesus Christ knew he had a time to die, didn't he? He just knew it hadn't come yet. This was not the time for him to die. So he was not going to exacerbate things. By going up in a very public way in the midst of the crowds and creating a big stink, like would happen given the situation here. Was this tension ultimately about the Jewish leaders when we read a passage like this? No. Jesus always gives us, he provides us that bigger perspective that each of us needs. Verse 7. You see, the issue is that the world hates me. Right? The world hates me, says Jesus. Why? Because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Why do the Jewish leaders hate me so much? Because they're human beings tainted and corrupted by sin. Because they're slaves of sin like the rest of y'all, is what Jesus is saying. Even like you, my brothers. The world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So Jesus was not going to join the pilgrim crowds. He was not going to publicly participate in the formal elements of the feast. Instead, as we're told here, he goes privately. So was Jesus going privately on some kind of stealth mission? Was that his objective? Not at all. Not at all. Look what we read in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple probably more specifically the temple courts, right? And he began teaching. He's not on a stealth mission. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me, it's his teaching. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So if you, on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. So right away, <laughs> right away, no surprise, there is renewed tension with the Jewish leaders. As soon as, as soon as, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the head of Jesus like a whack-a-mole game pops up, there the Jewish leaders are ready to pounce. They continue to focus on his credentials while he continues to focus on their hearts. His response in verses 16 through 19, It has some similarities, actually, to what he said in chapter 5, verse 30. I've got that on the screen here for you. Chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. Remember, he's talking to the Jewish leaders here in that passage as well. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. That's the same exact word in verse 24 of chapter 7. My judgment is just, my judgment is proper, my judgment is right. Same word that we find in our passage this morning. Why is his judgment just? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That sounds familiar to the themes that we're talking about this morning. So Jesus was focused on the Father's message. He was focused on the Father's will and the Father's glory, not his own. And yet these leaders, what are they doing? They're still scoffing. They're still plotting against him. Why did these men want to kill Jesus? Was it because they were upholding or protecting the law of Moses? I think that's what they told themselves, right? I think that's what they told themselves, but we know that's not true. Look at Jesus' indictment there in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Can you imagine their faces when he said that to them? Right? None of you, not one of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? What position do you stand in to judge me? The crowd, of course, has no idea what's happening. <laughs> They're not privy necessarily to all the uh backroom p- kind of quote-unquote pol- politics So they don't know what's happening here in this exchange. They simply think that Jesus is being paranoid as he begins to talk about people wanting to kill him. Um, Even worse, they think he's demon possessed, by the way, what by what he's because of what he's saying. Now, Jesus seems uninterested in the crowd's response. He doesn't even address that. He continues here to address the address the Jewish leaders. It's in these final verses, verses 21 through 24, that we discover our verse about judging. The one that we started with this morning. The one that we're trying to dig into and understand this morning as followers of Jesus Christ. So, to rightly understand this exhortation of Jesus in verse 24, we need to figure out, first of all, what does Jesus mean by the word appearances? appearances do not judge by appearances is what Jesus taught now is he simply saying I may look like a troublemaker to you I may look like a false teacher to you but guys I'm really not is that what he's saying no I don't think I don't believe that's what he's getting at here even though we often think about the word appearance that way I don't see any evidence here or in the New Testament that the actual appearance of Jesus was somehow the issue. So what does he mean then by the word appearances? And how can the context help us answer this question? When we consider the entire passage, starting with verse 1, I think the tension Jesus is touching on here has to do with Things as they should be, take a look at this. Things as they should be according to human estimations versus things as they truly are according to God himself. Things as they quote unquote should be versus things as they truly are. For example, when we talk about someone keeping up appearances, what are we talking about? We're talking about someone who wants to avoid judgment or scrutiny and does this by projecting that things are as they should be, right? Everything is as it should be. Take a look. Even when it isn't. Even when they are not. Now, with this kind of working definition in terms of appearances, things as they quote unquote should be, According to human estimations with this in mind, notice the examples of this very thing in our passage this morning. These are examples of things as they quote unquote should be. First of all, the brothers of Jesus urge Jesus to go up to the feast because they are judging him and the situation based on things as they should be. According to their estimation, right? according to popular ideas. If you are someone important, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, they're telling him, Jerusalem is the place to be. Now is the time to go. Just think about all the people there, the crowds, Jesus. Another example of this, number two, these Jewish leaders are skeptical of Jesus when they hear him teaching because they are judging him based on things as they quote-unquote, should be. Do you see that? They seem to be saying, he hasn't been trained properly. He hasn't followed our rabbinic path. He sounds knowledgeable, but something has to be wrong here. This doesn't add up. You see, things didn't seem to be, they didn't weren't conforming to things as they should be based on the assessment or the appraisal of the Jewish leaders. Number three, these Jewish leaders are also, as verse 1 reveals, trying to kill Jesus. Why were they trying to off Him? Because when it comes to the Sabbath, they are judging Him based on things as they, quote-unquote, should be. God commands us to rest on the Sabbath. God commands us to cease from what we're doing. You are working, Jesus, and you're causing others to work. Think of the man in chapter 5 who picked up his mat and began to walk because he was healed of his paralysis by the power of God through Jesus. So what Jesus is saying here in verse 24 is stop Judging based on your idea of things as they should be and start judging rightly in light of things as they truly are. How can we see? How can we know how things truly are? How can we know this? Look again at verse 17. Jesus provides an answer. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching, that is his teaching, is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Now something about that sounds a little mystical. Something sounds a little mystical there. As if the final determination of Jesus' truthfulness is some inward impression that you might have. I really want to do God's will, therefore I'll get some inward sense that Jesus is correct right? There's something like that seems kind of being conveyed. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. How do we know that? Well, notice what Jesus himself does here. Notice how he uses scripture. He uses scripture to expose their unscriptural thinking. Do you see how he does that? He he exposes their unscriptural thinking concerning his so-called Sabbath violation of healing the paralyzed man, describing the opening verses of chapter 5. Did Jesus really violate the Sabbath? Well, guess what? In Leviticus chapter 12, this is why he's talking about Moses here, even though Jesus knows that circumcision was given earlier to our forefather Abraham, our spiritual forefather. He knows that, but he's talking about Moses because in Leviticus chapter 12, God commanded the Israelites to circumcise their male children eight days after being born. We all know, of course, that a baby can be born whenever that baby wants to be born. (laughs) You can't control that timing. So guess what? Because of that, sometimes that eighth day would fall on a Saturday. That is the Sabbath. It would fall on a Sabbath day. So, the Jews, of course, did not see circumcision, the work of circumcision, as a violation of the Sabbath. Therefore, if circumcision, says Jesus, is a ritual blessing on one part of the body, why would these leaders be so opposed to Jesus' miraculous blessing on a man's entire body? Not just one part. You see, here's the key. Someone genuinely seeking to do God's will in light of the Hebrew Bible would have in great humility, in light of the revelation there, they would have understood God's heart for the Sabbath. His heart as to why He gave the Sabbath. And they would also understand the priority of mercy. The God of Israel was a God of mercy. Who desired compassion more than sacrifice. He desired mercy from his people, especially for those in need, especially as we might say today, the marginalized people, right? All throughout the Old Testament, God is asserting he is lifting up and holding up the rights and protecting the rights of those who were cast off by society. Those who had no one to stand up for them. Those who had no one to defend them. Those who had no one to speak for them. Those who were most vulnerable to exploitation. All throughout the Psalms, all throughout the Law of Moses, all throughout the Book of Proverbs, you hear that constant refrain. Stand up for the widow. Stand up for the poor. Defend the rights. The rights that God Himself had given them. And so those who were in desperate need in this way, all of this combined communicates the heart of the God of Israel. And someone who who was seeking truly to do His will would understand who Jesus was. Such people would see in Jesus' ministry and hear in Jesus' teaching that very same heart. The heart of the God of Israel. This is what so many of the Jewish leaders were lacking. It's shown over and over again throughout the Gospels in the New Testament. This is why Jesus tells them here that none of you keeps the law. You keep your version of the law and you've modified the word keep to mean something very different, right? You've made it become something that a system of rules that you look to and follow uh, through a process. It's become an equation. It's become transactional in a sense that you are looking for righteousness not from God but from the law and your ideas about the law. So he can truly say none of you keeps the law. Now, is there something mystical about all of this like I mentioned before? Well when sinners like us desire to do God's will above our own, you can be sure that is a true work of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) There's no two ways about it. That is a work of the Holy Spirit to give us a desire to put God's will before our own. So I think that we can say that the right judgment to which Jesus calls his listeners. And and remember what we're talking about here. If today we were saying this then we might say well Jesus says stop judging like he does in the first part of verse 24 and then and then most people would end it there, right? Don't judge, stop judging, stop judging. Jesus doesn't say stop judging. He says don't judge, stop judging by appearances, but start judging with right judgment proper judgment judge rightly so we do need to use discernment we do need to judge but we need to do so rightly i think the right judgment to which jesus is calling his listeners is informed by the scriptures and empowered by the spirits is it mystical yeah absolutely there's a work supernatural work of the holy spirit happening there That's the only way that we have the kind of heart and discernment that Jesus is describing. But it's grounded in the scriptures as Jesus demonstrates himself as he takes on these Jewish religious leaders. This right judgment is informed by the scriptures and empowered by the spirits. But here's the question for us. What does this look like in our own lives? What might this look like in our own lives as we seek to be disciples of Jesus and hear his words? if we honestly desire to live by the words of jesus here his instructions we need to first be honest about all the ways that we are like these jewish leaders it is very easy for us to look at these jewish leaders and think what a bunch of self-centered buffoons they were boy Pride, arrogance. Look how off track they are, man. Jesus, God in human flesh is right there standing in front of them, and they're so wrapped up in their law keeping, and they're so wrapped up in their in their notoriety and their reputation and all their, you know, temple society and synagogue society, and who knows all the things that they were doing. We can stand above them sometimes. We we think and say, look at these guys, look at these fools. And yet, God would have us, brothers and sisters, stop and say, how do I see myself in these men? Because remember, as Jesus said early on in this passage, this is about the world hating him, and that includes all of us. The Jewish leaders just happen to be the soup of the day in this passage. They just happen to be in the spotlight in terms of animosity. Romans 5 clearly tells us we are all enemies of God. Colossians 2 talks about the hostility that we have. Hostile in mind towards God apart from His sovereign grace in our lives. And so... We have to be honest with ourselves about the ways that we are like these Jewish leaders. No, we may not be, of course, we're not arguing for, contending for, or informed, or uh, motivated by a particular view of the Jewish law and, and that whole framework that these guys operated within but we have our parallel struggles. We have our own frameworks. We have our own tendencies, how sin manifests in our lives. Listen again to the correction of Christ. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. What did we say that meant? We said, Stop judging based on your idea of things as they quote-unquote should be and start judging rightly in light of things as they truly are. Take a moment and think about how you stumble in this area. How does your view of things as they quote-unquote should be, this is the way it should be, based on my estimation, based on how I feel, based on where I've come from. This is how things should be. Think about how that clashes with God's revelation of things as they really are. Think maybe about some of these areas. Things as they should be in regard to your feelings. Things as they should be In regard to your finances. Things as they should be. In regard to your marriage. Things as they should be. In regard to your workplace. Or career goals. Things as they should be. In regard to hard times. In your life. Things as they should be in regard to respect and recognition. Things as they should be in regard to your health. Things as they should be in regard to your spiritual growth. Things as they should be in regard to your healing or your hope. Things as they should be in regard to change in your life or in the lives of those around you. You see all of us have an idea of how things should be. But we aren't always aware of how those rub up against our intention with how things really are. Do you see how these me how, do you see how me-centered ideas or worldly ideas in areas such as these can bring us into tension with jesus himself the one that we confess as our leader as our king as our master as our lord do you see how they can bring us into tension with him just like these jewish leaders you see jesus may call you to surrender but instead you tighten your grip Jesus may call you to wait, but instead, what do you do? You rush in. Jesus may call you to pray, but instead you plan. Jesus may call you to lose, but you're determined to win. Jesus may call you to new priorities, but you cling to the old. Jesus may call you to love, but you sink deeper into indifference instead. Your should be. Or, my should be are shaped by all the voices around us as well as the voices inside of us. But God's word stands above us. Listen again to these beautiful words from the sun. If anyone's will is to do God's will, or we could translate that if Anyone desires to do what God desires, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Do you, do you hear what Jesus is telling us? Not only is he bringing us back to this fundamental question, he's also bringing us back to the heart. He's bringing you and me back to our hearts. You see, the first question to ask yourself when you sense the conviction about this, that I recognize, God, what you're saying to me, that I have an idea in my mind of how things should be, and I'm not discerning, I'm not bringing that to your word, I'm not seeking to to see the difference there, but boy, do I feel the tension. Boy, do I feel the rub between how things should be in my estimation and how things truly are according to what you have revealed. When that is happening, when we are sensing that to be true, the first question that we should bring to ourselves and ask ourselves is not, what has God revealed about things as they truly are in this or that area of my life? The first question to ask always is, what is genuinely important to me? My way or God's way? What I want or what God wants? That's it. That is what God is asking you this morning. Above anything else. What do you sincerely want? What do you genuinely want? Do you really want my way and my will? Or do you want your own will? Do you want your own way? You see, we can be a bore like an ocean liner and we can try to set everything up on that on that ocean liner. All the staterooms, all the ballrooms, all the decks, the exterior paint on the boat, we can try to conform it as much as we can to what we believe God wants. But brothers and sisters, friends, if that boat is going the wrong direction, it means nothing. Instead, it's simply a self-serving project that we are trying to dress up our own will with the things of God and therefore excuse and rationalize and stay in control. But God is pressing through Jesus this morning just like He was pressing these Jewish leaders. He was asking these Jewish leaders, What do you really want? Do you really want God's will? Is your desire really what God desires? To desire what God desires? You see, he's pressing us in the same way this morning. He is pushing you. He is pushing me to say, what do you deep down be as honest, brutally honest with yourself as you can be? What do you really want? At the end of the day, is it about your will Or is it about God's will? That is the call. That is always the ultimate question. That is always what God is pressing us towards. When a man or woman genuinely desires, genuinely trusts, genuinely surrenders to God's will for his or her life, and we know that's a work of the Spirit, don't we? By the grace of God when they genuinely do that, something amazing happens. The teachings of Jesus shine with the wisdom and power of heaven. When you hear these words, even though many of them are so hard, when you hear the words of Jesus, you recognize life in those words. Even if the world hates him and us because we listen to those words, we recognize love in his words. There is light. They are light in our darkness. They are guidance from a good and gracious king. But it always begins with the fundamental orientation of my heart. Is God speaking that message to you this morning? Is he reminding you that you've neglected that? That you've been trying to uh, rearrange the deck chairs? You've been trying to foof up the the cabins, the staterooms? That you've been working to try to match everything up the way you think? But that boat is actually going the wrong direction. Because the destination is your will and not God's will. Is He reminding you today of this point that it always begins with the fundamental orientation of your heart? I hope that He is. He's reminding me of that as well. You see, only when we are there, only only then when that orientation is towards His will, surrendering to His desires, only then are we positioned for right judgment. This right judgment. It's that discernment in every area that is informed by Scripture and empowered by the Spirit. When we don't have that, guess what? We end up like these Jewish leaders. We end up cherry-picking things out of the, out of the Scriptures and using them and creating a system that serves us, that leaves us in control, and not God. But when we desire His will through the work of the Spirit and we then come to the Scriptures, we're informed by the Scriptures and empowered by the Spirit, this discernment, this right judgment comes. Remember, a desire to do God's will above our own is definitely a work of the Holy Spirit. And for sinners like us, that work is only possible because Jesus' time did fully come. Right? His time did fully come. We know that it fully came. At another feast, Jesus went up very Publicly to Jerusalem, and he was slain there for us. That's why we know what we know. That's why we have what we have available to us. So, in light of the very, very good news of Christ crucified this morning, in light of the very good news, the sobering news. Uh, of Christ crucified, then raised to life, I encourage you, go to God in faith this morning. Repent of your should-bes. Repent of your should-bes and ask Him for that heart that Jesus is describing here, that heart for a will to do God's will. Amen? Could there be a better prayer? Let's pray that. Take a minute quietly and pray that to God to be that person described in verse 17, that person who desires to do what God desires and watch God in light of that prayer begin to work.